Every Christian loves to evangelize. I mean it. Right? We love to evangelize about our significant others, our spouses, our kids, our grandkids, our cats, our dogs, our hobbies, our cars, our careers, our homes, our dreams, our vacations, our books, our movies, our TV shows. We love telling people all the details, big ones and small ones, about the things that we are fired up about. There's just one topic that we're often reluctant to evangelize about, and that's our faith. Now, I don't want to stress anybody out this morning, so I'm going to stop using the word evangelism for the most part. I'm just going to refer to it as the (laughs) E-word. Now, most North American Christians have come to believe that the E-word is hard, dangerous, embarrassing, and very clearly someone else's job. So the 2020 vision team was clearly led to instead use the phrase reaching out. Because while most people would say that the E word is mysterious and difficult, I think we can all agree, yeah, I can reach out. Reaching out conveys the idea of an intentional effort of making a human connection of building relationships. And these are, in fact, the building blocks of successful evangelism in the 21st century, at least in America. Reaching out is essential for us to do as a body if we're really going to become God's lighthouse for this community. Because a lighthouse doesn't just shutter up all the windows and then wait for people to knock on the door and say, hey, can I come inside and look at some light? A lighthouse shines outward. It has to. It's not a very good lighthouse if it doesn't. It shines outward in all directions. It shines light into all of the dark places. And that's what we are called to be, the lighthouse for this community. Each of us, from the youngest believer in elementary school to the senior most saint, have a role to play in this. Because we are to be a unified body shining the light of Jesus Christ into the community around us. I have shared before, I will share again a lot, that our newly adopted 2020 vision, I love that phrase, newly adopted, it means that there's now zero risk that I write a sermon about a thing that gets rejected in business meeting. All right, I felt a little concerned for the last several weeks, like what if this was all a waste? But this vision can be summarized in eight words. God's lighthouse. That's the first of the words. First two words. That's the vision itself. I'm not advancing there. Thank you. And then the other six are our pillar, the three pillars. Welcoming in, building up, and reaching out. Right? This is what the lighthouse is built on. Today we're going to start talking about the reaching out pillar, as you might have guessed, and I would say for most of us, not all of us, some are very gifted in this area, but for most of us, this is probably the most intimidating of the three pillars. Yeah, I could probably welcome somebody. Yeah, I like learning stuff. Reaching out, what? And I would argue, and yes, there will be some who argue with me, and that's okay. We're allowed to argue and love. But I would argue that this is our weakest pillar as a body. Well, reaching out is explained to you on the collector's card in your bulletin. There you go. 
You now have all three, so get that on your refrigerator so that you've got the Monopoly and can charge double rent on the food to your kids. Right? It is explained. We are a community of faith in which every disciple is compelled by their love of Christ, not by the bald guy up front, to share the good news indiscriminately. Our outreach demonstrates our love for all our neighbors while including opportunities for each believer to engage every segment of society for the sake of transforming lives through that good news. So yes, reaching out is about the E word, but it's about doing it in a way that many of us have probably never really considered, or at least never considered to be the E word, because we've probably been told or gotten the impression or been trained that that the evangelism, there I said it, is about gimmicks or about debating or it's about having a system or having a canned speech that you're ready to deliver to any stranger you run into. But this evangelism is about three other E words that every believer can do. Three E words that are illustrated and described by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Peter writes, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now Peter is writing to Christians who are facing some amount of persecution for their faith. He is giving them instruction and advice on how to live a life, in many cases an ordinary life, but a life transformed by Christ. In everyday, day-to-day life, go to work, raise kids, but do it in a way that honors Christ in a world that is hostile to Christ. What he is describing here 2,000 years ago happens to be the key to effective evangelistic outreach in post-modern, post-Christian America, where if we just wanted to go block access to the pool next door and hand out tracts, we would be very unlikely to win anyone to Christ. So I want to summarize Peter's instructions related to how to reach a community like that as being the three E's of reaching out. Embrace Christ, explain Christ, and embody Christ. If we can do these three things, we will reach out as a lighthouse for Christ. So Peter begins by explaining that we should embrace Christ, especially in difficult times. Now let's be very clear and very honest. Troubles are likely to find us. If you hear otherwise, you're not hearing it from me. And they're very likely to find us, especially if we are making a difference for God's kingdom. Because while Satan is very, very content to leave a self-absorbed church happily on its way, because they don't really matter. 
He hates an effective church that is reaching out to the lost with the light of Jesus Christ. The systems of the world hate those people and those churches that are effective at reaching out with the good news of Jesus Christ. The evidence of that is only increasing in the news. So let's be honest and not be surprised if we experience opposition, resistance, even potentially persecution as we turn outward with the good news. Now, I don't want you to like flee screaming from here. Most of the time, we're very likely to experience peace and goodwill as we are answering God's calling and, and being the hands and feet in Christ and serving people in need. That's why Peter asked in verse 13, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But he also immediately acknowledges that that's not always going to be the case. But that there is blessing amidst the opposition and the persecution. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So if we suffer for doing God's work, whether it's in Thousand Oaks or whether it's in Indonesia, Peter says we'll be blessed. The reality is that when you work for God's kingdom, even if there is short-term pain, and let me be clear, short-term is defined as now till the day you die, at the max, won't go longer, might go shorter, no promises there. Even if there is short-term pain, there is always long-term eternal gain. But the reality is we are wired to avoid unpleasant experiences. We are powerfully affected by the potential of near-term suffering and misery. There's a lot of interesting studies about that impact on us and how much power it has over us. So it is natural for us to be afraid and to be distressed by the prospect of opposition. I mean, if you look around, there is so much wrong with the world around us and so much religious violence and increasing violence and persecution targeted towards those who, who proclaim Jesus Christ, why wouldn't we be troubled? Why wouldn't we be distressed or fearful? And yet Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And I want you to think about this for a minute because this kind of struck me as I was preparing this week, something I'd never really observed as I'd read this passage many times in the past. These words are coming from Peter the fearful. Peter the denier, the one who refused to acknowledge Jesus Christ the night he was arrested. And yet here he stands several decades later, a man who had once known fear and had once known a troubled mind, exactly what he is speaking of in verse 14. And he says to have no fear. And we know from the way he lived his life and the way that he died, he truly walked this walk. So what cured Peter's fear? What can relieve our natural anxiety and fear when we are troubled by the world around us? Well, Peter tells us in verse 15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, it is really easy to read this in a superficial way. Like, okay, I'm going to honor Christ as holy. Great, I love Jesus. He is not meaning that. He is saying that this is the alternative to that fear and anxiety is to focus our hearts on Jesus Christ, to honor Him as holy. You see, the cure for fear and distress is to truly embrace Christ in our hearts. 
Verses 14 and 15 are offering a contrast. They're offering two choices about what we can fill our hearts with. We can either let the natural world, the natural being, fill our hearts with with distress and, and fear and despair and frustration when we encounter opposition to reaching out with the gospel. Or we can embrace Christ and fill our hearts with his power and his presence and his person with his mercy and his grace and his strength and his holiness. That is what Peter is telling us to do. He's commanding us to focus our hearts on the Jesus who loves us, the Jesus who died for us, who rose from the dead. Focus on the Jesus who has promised to be with us until the end of the age if we are faithful in making disciples. Doing this brings us back to the pillar of building up because it's as our hearts fill with the holiness of Jesus, as we are reading about Him daily in the Bible, as we are seeing more and more of His love and His power, as we are reflecting and meditating more and more on His person and His glory, as we are praying and conversing with the Father and talking about Him with our godly friends and mentors, It is this that fills our hearts with the holiness of Jesus. As we embrace Christ and fill our minds and our hearts with thoughts of Him, there is little room left for fear and doubt and anxiety. That's the foundation of the reaching out pillar, that every single disciple within our community of faith would be compelled not by a sense of duty, not by a sense of drudgery, not by me haranguing you from up front, but by the love of Christ to share the good news of the gospel. And reaching out becomes so much easier when we are so full of love for Jesus that we just can't help talk about Him. When we get so excited about Him that He's just like any of our other enthusiasms. We actually want to talk about Him with our friends. When we get excited about all that Jesus did for us, when we think about Him taking on human flesh at Christmas, when we think about Him living a sin-free life to set the perfect example for us of how to live, when we think about the incredible miracles He did, miracles unlike anything anyone had ever seen or heard of before that proved that He was the Son of God, that He was God in the flesh. And as we think of Him voluntarily, here He is, King of the universe, letting Himself be tortured and nailed to a wooden cross beside two thieves and with all of our sins nailed to that cross with Him. Dying a horrifying and painful death and then returning to life on the third day, physically alive, so that all who believe in Him as Lord and Savior will also rise and live forever in the presence of God. When we fill our hearts with that, when we embrace that Christ, there is no room for anything else. And when we have embraced Christ and our love for Him dispels the fear and anxiety about this world, then then Peter explains that we must be ready to explain Christ. We need to be ready anytime, not just when we feel like it. Peter continues in verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
yet do it with gentleness and respect. We're told to be ready at any time, and this can be tricky because we might have trouble remembering the Romans' road, or we might stumble over our, our list of the four spiritual laws, but what I would hope is that at any time we would be ready and able to explain our hope and our joy. Right, the essence of this passage is that by the way we are filled with love for Christ, the way we are living it, people are going to notice there's something about us, and they're going to say, why are you so hopeful? You're having a terrible season of your life. And we're ready to say why, to just give a reasoned explanation of why we have hope, even in the worst and darkest days imaginable. And I want to be clear, Peter is giving instructions to every believer. He is not writing to just evangelists and pastors and teachers here. He is saying that every Christian, everyone who follows Jesus, should be prepared at all times, anytime, the good times and the bad times, when we're ready and more often probably when we're not, to explain Jesus and our certainty of our salvation. Why we have that. So when Peter, you know, we realize here when he, when he speaks of hope in us, and he says, well, you know, be ready to give a defense, a reasoned argument about the hope that we have. He's talking about biblical hope here. Right? I always want to be clear that we understand what hope means. It does not mean I hope I win the lottery. It does not mean I hope I get Taco Bell for lunch today. I do. <laughs> it is describing a confident expectation of what is yet to come. So the question is, why do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Why do you have certainty about your salvation and about forgiveness and about eternal life? If you can answer these questions, you're ready to give a defense. You don't need a doctorate of theology. You don't need a master of divinity. You just need to know why you believe what you believe. Now, our hope, our confidence, our certainty is in Christ Jesus. Paul writes in Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, and here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right? Our confidence, our certainty of glory is the fact that Jesus Christ is working within us. He is in us. We have confidence and certainty through the blood of Jesus Christ, that innocent blood of the perfect life of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial Lamb of God, who gave His body voluntarily to be broken on the cross. His blood was freely poured out so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could live forever in God's presence. We have certainty through the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was witnessed by hundreds of disciples. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 5-8, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We have certainty in the forgiveness and salvation and eternal life that is given freely to everyone who claims Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, through the sign, seal, and guarantee of the Holy Spirit living within us, as Paul explains in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, 
were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. If you believe these things, you can explain Christ. But Peter is clear, how we explain Christ matters a lot. It should never be done arrogantly or crassly to fit in with the community, with the neighborhood, with the world around us. It should never be done coercively, abrasively, confrontationally, or condescendingly. Rather, we must always explain Jesus with gentleness towards the one asking us and with respect towards God. It doesn't matter how we're asked, whether it's a serious inquiry or a joke, whether it is kind or cruel, whether it is serious or mocking, whether it is a gunpoint. Gentleness in explaining Jesus is the answer towards all the hatred and mayhem and violence and screaming in the world around us. And even more important than gentleness towards our fellow man is what Peter describes in the original text as fear which means respect towards the God of the universe, whom we seek to honor and glorify at all times through our actions, but most especially when we're explaining the person and work of his eternal son, Jesus. But there is yet one more aspect to effective contemporary reaching out than just embracing Jesus and being excited about him and just explaining him well. And that is because people in today's cynical postmodern culture crave authenticity. And so the opponents of the early church, they were the same way. They also craved authenticity, that the actions had to match the words. And so this is why Peter's words teach us to embody Christ every time. You see, Generation X, that's me. Millennials, teens, children, they all recognize, because we have seen it since birth, when someone is marketing to us, when they are spinning stuff to us, when they are spouting garbage at us, we know it when we hear it. We want proof that the person actually means it, not just saying it. If we don't know that you mean it and truly live it, we're not going to bother one bit to care about what you're saying. That's just the reality of the world in which we live. That is both our challenge and our opportunity. But I would emphasize, it's really not all that different from the way things were 2,000 years ago. I hear a lot of Christians kind of wring their hands about the, the decadence of our culture and so forth, and all I say is, that ain't nothing compared to the way the Greco-Romans were <laughs> that culture 2,000 years ago. But 2,000 years ago, as the early Christians reached out with a crazy message about some guy who lived and died and came back to life and that you should completely upend your entire life because of this, the people then thought they were crazy, right? They are reaching out to a world that is materialistic, that is very academically oriented, that is jaded, that is cynical, that has very much a been-there-done-that attitude, that is very much about the urban sophisticates in Rome and not listening to some bunch of backwater hicks from Israel. But while they thought the message was weird, they had never seen anything like the way the early Christians lived the gospel. And that changed the world. We have to do the same. 
Our challenge is very much the same as the early church faced. Our culture is almost as alien to the gospel as that culture was. The world was changed to the power of the gospel. It can change again. And so this is why Peter goes beyond just embracing Christ and explaining Christ to say that, that we are being commanded here to literally embody Christ in verse 16. He calls us to live with a good conscience, having a, a good conscience so that when you are slandered, right, when, the expectation, someone's going to lie about you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The point is that no matter what the opponents of the gospel might say about us, we can't control what they say about us. We have to live in a way, mind and action, where we have nothing to answer for to God, who is the only judge who matters. So if we are attacked for embracing and explaining and embodying Jesus Christ, Paul says, you know what? The ones who are attacking us will eventually be shamed for it, whether it's in this life or at the final judgment. And let's be clear, right? Peter is, Peter is honest here. I said Paul a minute ago, but it was Peter. As we walk in the footsteps of Christ, we are likely to experience some of the same things he did, right? That sounds awesome. I want to be just like Jesus. Right, so rejection, suffering, humiliation, isolation, and maybe even death. God didn't exempt his eternal son from these. It would be ridiculous to think that he would exempt us from them. But Peter is clear here. Peter, who had to overcome his own natural failings and his own bluster and his own cowardice and his own failure and his own fear, was able to overcome it through the power of God's Spirit. And he says, it's okay to suffer as we embody Christ. He concludes this thought in verse 17. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Embrace Christ. Explain Christ. Embody Christ. We might be really uncomfortable with the E word, but as believers in Jesus Christ, I would like to think that we should each be able to do these other three E words, particularly since we have the advantage of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So look back at the reaching out pillar. Think about those elements and think about how each of those are actually incorporated in here. We are a community of faith in which every disciple is compelled by their love of Christ. That's embracing Christ in our hearts. To share the good news indiscriminately. That's explaining Christ. Our outreach demonstrates our love for all our neighbors. That's embodying Christ. While including opportunities for each believer to engage every segment of society for the sake of transforming lives through that good news. And then our first initiative under this pillar is about being intentional with these three things, embracing, explaining, and embodying. It calls us to foster a culture in which it is the objective of all members of the community of faith to introduce others to Christ. And let's be honest with ourselves. This is a massive culture change for this church. Like so many churches. It's going to take a great deal of time, a great deal of building up to really change where our hearts and our priorities lie. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. But as we've talked about in recent weeks, one which we cooperate with 
by what we take into our minds and our hearts. And our strategy for actually making these introductions is going to be fairly straightforward. It embodies these principles that Peter describes. We will introduce others to Christ by first embracing Him ourselves and being so filled with passion and excitement about Him. We can't help but introduce other people to our best friend. And we'll introduce people to Christ by being Christ-like so that they see Him in us. They see that authenticity that then will make it possible for them to be willing to hear us. For us to explain Him, why we love Him, why we seek to be like Him, and why we love them in His name. And we each have a role to play in reaching out to our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, our co-workers, and the people of this community around us. You might not be an evangelist. Most people are not specifically called to be an evangelist as their full-time calling. But I guarantee you that you can surely love Jesus and tell people why you love Jesus and then try hard to act like Jesus with God's help. That's really at the heart of reaching out, and it is something that we are all called to do. Now, it will be difficult at times. It will be uncomfortable at first. Because every new thing is. Every new thing worth doing is, anyway. But remember, even if we experience opposition, Peter is clear, we will be blessed. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so deeply grateful for the incredible work that Jesus did for us on the cross. For the example he gave through his life, through the sacrifice for his resurrection, Lord. For the forgiveness of sins, for the grace that we experience, no matter how little we deserve it. Lord, fill our hearts with this. Let us fully embrace your Son. Crowd out the fears and anxieties that build up in our mind the more we go without sharing the good news. As we embrace your Son, Lord, help us to just be willing to explain Him and to live a life that embodies Him. So that people are driven to ask, what? why are you so hopeful? Why are you so joyful? And that we are ready to explain. So in Jesus' name I pray, amen.